verse 1 through verse 15. And so we are in this sermon series on the attributes of God. And we likened it in the the first sermon to a mountain lookout. And our, our goal is to stop and look and consider the Lord our God. And that is our aim each week, especially so this week. And so our sermon text this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. So hear the word of our God. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, All the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are your people and we have come here to receive from you this morning. We are so thankful that you are a God who delights to feed us. And so we come to make you our lot. We come to content ourselves on you. And we pray this morning that you would so speak and fill our hearts. Satisfy us with yourself. And would you do that this morning? We pray. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So think about Deuteronomy 6 for a moment, or just the book of Deuteronomy in general. Israel was finally there, finally there. After centuries of anticipation, after massive massive setbacks and failures, after many delays and disappointments, the land, the very one promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was there, and it was right before them. This land was a good land, as Moses says, as we heard, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was desirable. It was also a particularly special land. For the Lord in this land promised to dwell near his people, Israel, the covenant God with his covenant people together in the land. 
And there the Lord would shower upon them his innumerable blessings, one after another, after another. But as we think about this land that is before Israel, it is good, it is special, it is promised, it is also dangerous. And that's how often the Lord works, is it not? Embedded in this land of Canaan was a full assortment of of spiritual traps. And the danger for Israel was this as they entered into the land of Canaan, that either through fear or seduction, whether through forgetfulness or pride or through lust or just plain out boredom, that they would turn away from the Lord their God and begin to serve the gods of the Canaanites all around them in that land. And as we think about that land of Canaan, there were plenty of gods to contend with. The Canaanites had a God for each occasion and every circumstance. They had a God specifically suited for each and every need. They had gods in the skies above, the sun, the moon, the stars. They they worshiped them. They had gods who rode upon the clouds and they had gods below as well. Gods like Molech and Mod. They had gods for planting. They had gods for the harvest. They had gods for fertility. They had gods for their family and their tribe and their nation. And their gods had idols physical representations, and their physical representations were everywhere in the land of Canaan. You could not move about the land of Canaan without running into an idol and a host of people dedicated to its service and worship and maintenance. Israel was going into a very dangerous place for their souls. And so Israel needed a theological lesson They needed to learn something about their God if they were to indeed thrive in this land. And so that is exactly what Moses gives them before they enter into the land of Canaan. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. So in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses preaches to the people of God so that they would avoid these spiritual traps and so thrive in the worship of their God. And so what does Moses do? He, he preaches in this book. He, he preaches to them about God's blessings and what would happen to them if they dutifully obeyed and kept the covenant. He also preaches to them God's curse. What would happen to them if they turned away from God's covenant, if they turned away from God and served the other gods around them? Moses did more as well. He he preached to them about the futility of these so-called gods. He he told them that they were just the products of their imaginations, that their idols were just man-made. Moses even mocks these idols and gods. In Deuteronomy 4.28, he tells Israel that these gods cannot see or hear or eat or smell. They are not gods. And after doing all of this, Moses turns his attention to the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh himself. He repeats this again and again in the book. Yahweh, he is the only God. Deuteronomy 4.39, Moses preaches. He says, know therefore and lay it to heart that the Lord is a God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. And Moses spells out the, the implications of that. Yahweh's lordship. It means that he is the sovereign ruler, ruler over big things and small things, ruler over bad things and good things. Deuteronomy 32, 39, Moses preaches, speaking for Yahweh, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Do you see what Moses is doing in the book of Deuteronomy? He is preaching the Lord, the Lord's majesty, the Lord's glory. And he is doing that to prepare them for entrance into the land. They need potent theology. 
And this was the theology that they needed. In fact, if we have our heads on straight this morning, this is the same sort of theology that we need. For as we look around in our circumstances, we're living in the same spiritual reality that the Israelites were themselves. The gods of the nations surround us literally on every side, and every day we are tempted to turn away from the Lord our God and to serve these small, puny little gods. But as we listen to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, as he gives this potent theology to Israel and to us so that we might worship the Lord, there is one piece of theology that undergirds all of Moses' preaching in this book. There is one point that is essential for Israel's life and success in the land. And without this point, they will not be able to love God or know God or serve God or obey God. And as we think about it for ourselves, this point is yet essential for us. For our loving, our knowing, our obeying, our serving must be founded on this point as well. And Moses gives us this foundational piece of theology in verse 4 of chapter 6. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Think about that for a moment. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That that short, pithy statement that Moses gives Israel, it's almost a slogan, teaches that there is only one God. Moses is firmly establishing the truth of, of monotheism. There is Yahweh, there is no one else. But as we think about that slogan that, that Moses gives Israel, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It does so much more than that because it reveals to us what our God is like. We can say this, God is, according to his very essence and being, one. God is, as we consider his will and knowledge and action, one. God is, even as we consider him in the revelation of his triune deity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one. There is, according to Moses, only one God, and that one God is, in fact, one. And that's what Moses preached to Israel on the edge of Canaan. That's what they needed to hear you have one God, and that God is indeed one. And this brings us to our, our sentence this morning as we work through the attributes of God. And our sentence is this, God is simple. God is simple. Now, right off the bat, that sentence most likely doesn't make much sense to you. There's something off about that as you hear that sentence, God is simple, and it probably doesn't sound right for a few reasons. First off, you might object to that sentence saying, simple? Nothing in this series so far has been simple about God. How can we say now, after about four weeks into this series, that God is indeed simple? That doesn't make sense. So you might be saying that. That doesn't make sense. Or maybe, maybe you're saying something else. You hear that sentence, God is simple, and you're offended. Simple. I cannot believe that you would describe God with that word. God is no dunce. God cannot be duped or beguiled. He is glorious. He is full of majesty and wonder. How, would we, how can we ever say that God is simple? So what can we say about that? Well, we should agree with those objections. God is not easy to understand. In fact, we cannot understand him as he is in himself. That's what we learned a few weeks ago. God is incomprehensible. Furthermore, God is no simpleton or fool or dunce. He cannot be fooled. Rather, he is altogether wise. And the scriptures teach us that his understanding is unsearchable. 
But here's the thing we must say. The word simple in this context has nothing to do with our ease of understanding God, nor has it anything to do with a a moral quality of being an idiot or a dunce. Rather, it means something theological about God. And so we can ask, well, what does it mean for God to be simple? What are we saying here? Well, we can state it negatively, first of all. And when we state it negatively, we mean this. God is not made up of parts or components. He is not a compounded being. He is not a composed being. So that's how we can say it negatively. Negatively, when we say God is simple, we are saying God isn't made up of any parts. Or we can say it positively. And if we say it positively, we can say this. All that is in God is God. All that is in God is God. He is one simple, pure, undivided spiritual essence. That's what we mean when we say God is simple. Now, that might be escaping you. In fact, that might be sounding rather complicated to you. And the truth is, God's simplicity is rather complicated. It's one of the hardest doctrines to understand about God. And so for clarity's sake and for the sake of our access to this doctrine that we might understand it, I want to reason through this doctrine with you from the scriptures by employing two illustrations. So we're going to land on two illustrations, and from those illustrations, we're going to reason theologically so that we might understand and try to wrap our minds around this doctrine of God's simplicity. So first illustration is this. Think for a moment about your favorite recipe. And if you're the one who's often in the kitchen, you probably can call to mind the ingredients that are in your favorite recipe. And while you're doing that, I want to tell you about one of my favorite dishes. It was called when I was growing up, and it's still called. If you look in my mom's cookbook, it just says Brad's favorite hot dish. And Brad's favorite hot dish consists of only the best recipes or ingredients. It consists of cube hash browns, consists of milk, something you only can find in Wisconsin, top the tater, sour cream, and lots and lots of cheese. And what happens is you take all of these ingredients, you you mix them together. I'm not sure how they're mixed together, but at the end, a lot of cheese goes on top. It goes into the oven, it gets baked, and then it comes out. After about 15 minutes of cooling down, you can eat it, and it is really good if you like cheese and dairy. Now, just think about this recipe, because this recipe really helps us think about God. We can say this, when we think about God, we cannot think about God like we would a recipe. God is not a combination of ingredients. God is not love plus mercy plus patience plus a cup of power and a dash or two of knowledge with a good measure of kindness sprinkled on top. That would be a tragic error to make about God, thinking about him as a recipe. In fact, as some theologians argue, to make this sort of mistake is the first step towards atheism and complete godlessness. But as we think about it, this is a mistake that we often make and we're prone to make. We can be tempted to think about God having parts or components. We think, well, God is 25% love and he's 25% mercy and he's 25% just and he's 25% sovereign. And when we gather up all of these parts and put them together, what we have finally with the addition of all of these parts is God himself. One piece plus one piece plus one piece plus one piece. Now we have our God. Or sometimes we make an even worse mistake than that. Sometimes we are guilty of pitting one of God's attributes 
against another one of God's attributes. And this is something you've probably heard before, or maybe this is something you have said yourself or have thought at times. Maybe this is something you've heard. How could a God of love ever condemn a sinner to hell and all of the horrors there? How could the God of love I see in the Bible ever do something like that? Or maybe you're really in a a tough spot in life and you say to yourself, how could a God who is good, he says he is good in passage after passage after passage, put me through such terrible suffering in my life? This doesn't square. I can't make sense of this God. But what we need to do is we need to listen to the scriptures because what the scriptures do is they resist this way of thinking about God. So let's listen to the scriptures. For example, the scriptures do not speak of God, of just having love or having a part of love or possessing a measure of love or being capable of love. He said, what did the scriptures say about God? Well, we get 1 John 4, 8. God is love. And this goes for all of God's attributes. God does not just possess the quality of holiness or have a measure of holiness or a bit of holiness. Isaiah 6, 3 says what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He is holiness. Or think about light. God does not just have a measure of light or a bit of light. He does not just have a quality of light. 1 John 1, 5 says this. He is light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And this is true for all of God's attributes, wisdom, righteousness, goodness, knowledge, power, patience. He does not contain these attributes. He is his attributes. An old Dutch Dutch theologian, Petrus van Maastricht, puts it like this, trying to sum up this doctrine for us. He says, God is a deity that is nothing but pure deity. Each and every one of his attributes, wisdom, goodness, grace, truth, holiness, righteousness, power, and so forth, are the very deity itself. Do you hear that? Do you understand what that means? God does not contain attributes. God does not possess attributes. He is his attributes. And this is where God is so unlike and different than us. God is completely other than us here. An old Puritan, George Swinock, explains the difference between us and God. He writes, whatever is in God is God's very being. Swinock goes on and he makes these comparisons and they help us understand what's going on. He says, humans and angels are wise, but God is wisdom. Humans and angels are holy, but God is holiness. God is all being and nothing else. You might contain a bit of wisdom. You might learn wisdom or grow in wisdom, and that's to be human. We we put on these different attributes, but we aren't wisdom, but that is what God is like. He is one. But as we think about this, we haven't exhausted God yet, for we can reach even further, and theologians of the church press us further as we think about it. Augustine, reasoning from the same scriptures that I read to you, writes this, for God to be is the same as to be strong or to be just or to be wise and to be whatever else you may say of that simple multiplicity or that multiple simplicity. That which is his justice is also itself goodness and that which is goodness is also blessedness. 
Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying this, because of God's simplicity, we cannot divide God up into pieces or even worse, pit his attributes against each other. God's simplicity means that God's love is a holy love and a just love and a patient love and a powerful love. In fact, simplicity reaches even further and teaches us that God's love is his power, is his sovereignty, is his patience, is his justice, is his holiness. Whereas Moses simply preaches in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But as we listen to this, this might raise an objection in our heads. You might be thinking about this, and you might be saying in your head, this creates a problem for us, doesn't it? What are we doing in this sermon series? We are studying the attributes of God. If this is true of God, that God is simple, how can we speak of God's attributes with any specificity or intelligence if God is one? If God is one. Well, as we think about it, in one sense, we're on to something here. God's simplicity means that there are no parts to God. Properly, if we could conceive of God in himself, there are no such things as attributes in God, for God is one. But this doesn't solve the problem for us, does it? Because that's not very satisfying. For this isn't how we see God revealed in Scripture. Just think about your, your Bible reading. You're reading your Bible, and you're working through the different stories in the Bible. And in one story, you're reading it. And what do you see? Well, you see the Lord, but you see something very specific about the Lord. You see, for example, his love. And then you turn the page, and you keep reading. And, and there again, you see the Lord. But you see something different this time. You, you see his power revealed. And then you turn the page, and you see something different of God. You, you, you see his patience here he's dealing with his people so patiently. And then you turn the page, and then you see his, his justice. And you keep going on, and you turn the page, and you see these different episodes, and we see something different of God. So much so that we can say, I, I can see this of God, and this of God, and this of God. So much so that we can say, we can define these different aspects that we see of God. Even more, this isn't how we experience God in this life. There are times in distinct seasons in our lives when we taste something of God. There's a season in our life where we really taste God's mercy. And then the season goes away and we, we taste something else of God so clearly, maybe his, his power or his majesty or something else. And so how do we square the doctrine of God's simplicity, his, his oneness, his absolute oneness with our lives and our human experience? Well, we've got one illustration in front of us, the recipe, and now we can employ a second illustration, and we can think about a stained glass window. And so it's not very bright today, but imagine the sun shining through these stained glass windows with brightness. Now just imagine that. You could close your eyes, think about it. The sun is shining through the stained glass windows. What do you see when you're on the inside of the building? Well, you see all sorts of colors, vibrant colors, and especially if there's more colors in the stained glass, you see red and blue and green and yellow and purple. Each color you can make out with any sort of confusion. Each color is distinct and beautiful and wonderful, and you can see it all from the inside. But just think about this for a moment with me. Where do all of these colors come from? 
Well, the answer is this. All of these colors are produced by the one sun that is shining up in the sky. The sun's rays, as they shine down through those windows, are refracted through the different panes of glass, and the result of that is a vibrancy of different colors. Now, this illustration is limited, and if we really push on it, it'll fall apart. Every illustration does when we think about God, but it gets us thinking in the right direction. So think about it like this. Creation and redemption are like the stained glass window. So when God takes action, when he saves and when he creates, his one undivided being is refracted through his works and we come to see him from this perspective and that perspective. And when his one undivided being is refracted through creation and redemption, we come to see him so clearly So clearly, in fact, we can say, ah, I can see him now. He is love, and now I can see him again, and he is mercy, and now I can see him again. Here is his majesty and justice and his wisdom. It's like the sun shining through the stained glass window, the one God shining through his works in creation and redemption. In fact, that is exactly what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the greatest stained glass window Because in the cross, we see the one God refracted. Just think about the death of Jesus. What do we see of God? Well, we see his oneness revealed in a multiplicity of colors. So at the cross, we see simultaneously God's love and mercy and kindness. Because what's happening at the cross? Jesus is standing in the place of sinners. And there we receive God's love and mercy, our sins forgiven. But what else do we see? We also see God's justice and wrath and truthfulness. For at the cross, he does not overlook sin. Rather, he punishes it upon his own son. And so at the cross, we see the one God. And we see that none of his attributes are at odds with each other. They all meet. Love and justice meets perfectly at the cross. And why? Because there is one God. And that God is indeed one. So there we have these two illustrations. We've got the the recipe, and the recipe teaches us God has no parts. We've got the stained glass window, and the stained glass window shows us how we can know God as creatures in this world. And I hope you can see after these two illustrations how important the doctrine of divine simplicity is. It's a doctrine that has to color all of our thinking about God, from his attributes to his existence to his triunity, but here we need to think about some application. We've got a lot of big theology in front of us, but what does this mean for us? Specifically, what does this mean for our faith? How does the doctrine of divine simplicity help us in the Lord? Well, if we're thinking rightly about this doctrine, we should understand it as a sweet doctrine one that is precious, one that nourishes us because it should give us assurance and confidence in God. What I want to do with the rest of our time is open up the sweetness of this doctrine for you, and I want to do it by way of contrast. So I want to contrast God. And so in 1976, Johnny Cash recorded a song called One Piece at a Time. Maybe you've heard it. And so if you know the song, there's a character in the song, and this character in the song lives in Detroit and works on the assembly line making Cadillacs. That's his job. Every day he shows up and he's doing his job, putting that one piece on the car. 
But as he's doing this work, this character in the song has this genius idea. Every day he is going to steal one piece off the assembly line and he's going to bring it home because he wants to assemble his own Cadillac. And so thus the, the song title, One Piece at a Time, This character does that. He smuggles out pieces in his lunchbox every day. The bigger pieces, if you listen to the song, he smuggles out in his friend's motorhome. But at the end of the song, after some 25 years of smuggling out pieces, he's finally got his own Cadillac, and he puts it all together, and the result is this very strange-looking car from 25 years of different models of Cadillacs. Now, just think with me about Johnny Cash's Cadillac. This is so helpful for us as we think about God. What can we say about that car? Well, we can say that car is made up of parts, thus the song, one piece at a time. And because it is made up of parts, it means the following. First of all, this car has an originator and designer. Someone thought up each part. Someone designed each part and engineered each part and then made each part. Even more, there is someone who who knows all of these parts and how they're supposed to fit together, how they're supposed to work and make a car that runs and drives. But there's more here to consider about this car. This car and all of its parts are dependent upon something. This car needs to be held together. It needs nuts and bolts. Some pieces need to be welded together if it is to be a car. And going even further, as we think about this car, this car can be upgraded and improved. Because it's made up of parts, one part can be swapped out for another part. You can make the car better. Also, because it's made up of parts, this car can get worse. There's rust and decay. The brakes can get worn and they might need to be replaced. The steering can get loose and might need to be tightened. The engine can get weak. The transmission can lose a gear. The body will rust and decay and flake into dust. As we think about Johnny Cash's Cadillac, all of that is true of his car. Why? Because it is made up of parts. It is made up of parts. But here, when we think about God, God is different in every way. Because God has no parts, he has no originator or designer. No one put God together or fabricated God. There is no engineer to him, nor is he dependent upon someone or something that comes before him. He doesn't need to be put together. And because he has parts, he's not held together by someone or something or some principle. Because God has no parts, he cannot be added to or improved. God cannot get better in any way. And because God has no parts. He cannot wear out or decay or rust. God is perfect. And when we start to grab hold of this doctrine, it is such a sweet doctrine for us. And because of this doctrine, the scriptures preach sweet truth after sweet truth after sweet truth to us. For example, we get John 4, 24, where Jesus says, God is spirit. He is this glorious, irreducible being. Our God is the first being with no one or no thing coming before him. We get Revelation chapter 1, verse 8 because of the doctrine of simplicity. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. Because of simplicity, we get the immutability of God. He cannot be changed. We get Psalm 102, 26 and 27. The psalmist praises God. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. 
Because of simplicity, our God is incorruptible. He cannot rust or wear. Paul worships God in 1 Timothy 1.17, saying, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Because of the simplicity of God, our God is infinite. 1 Kings 8.27, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. And ultimately, because of the simplicity of God, our God is indeed perfect in every way. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5.48, Your heavenly Father is perfect. And because of simplicity, all of this is true of God. And this is sweetness to us. Christian, you must rejoice in this. Behold your God. He is most simple. And so here is your duty. This is your duty. You must, people of God, content yourself in him and him alone. Because God is simple, it means this. You must peel yourself away from all the so-called gods of the nations and their weak and worthless idols and give yourself wholly and truly to the most simple God. I want to go back to that old dead Dutch guy, Petrus van Maastricht. And he works on this duty. We have to content ourselves in God. And he works away at it, giving us clarity about this. Just listen to him. I'm going to read a paragraph. He says this. When it comes to our lot, the more simple, the more solid, and the more variegated from composition by wealth, honors, friends, the more mutable. And the more distracted by so many objects, the more liable to cares and anxieties. For the more you possess, the more you can lose. It is this, on this account that we should, in godly self-sufficiency, accustom our souls to simplicity and should substitute for the variety of many things the one God who is most sufficient in every way for all things, who is accordingly the one thing necessary. So then let us possess him as our lot with simple faith, learning contentment in all things. That's a thick paragraph. Let me work it through with you. There are two promises that Maastricht is making to you in this paragraph. First promise is this. If you leave behind godly simplicity, or we could say godly self-sufficiency, or we could say godly contentment, so if we leave that behind, taking in all the things of the world, filling up on them, looking to the gods of the nations for meaning and health and wealth and security, running around crazy like a chicken with our heads cut off, Here's the promise that Maastricht gives us. Your lot will be this. It will be loss. You will lose everything. And after listening to this doctrine of simplicity, this should make good sense to us. It shouldn't surprise us in any way. All things are made up of parts, and because they are made up of parts, they decay, they fall apart, and die. And just consider that for a moment. Do a mental reckoning in your head of everything that you have. Everything that you have in your life that is made up of parts will die away someday, including your very own body. And if we understand this first promise, this promise should cause us to do something. It should cause us to take action. It should cause us to ever hold so loosely to the things made up with parts. 
We shouldn't cling so, so, so greedily to them. We shouldn't lust after them, for their very composition teaches us something. They will not last forever. Friends and family die, wealth and honors wear away, homes and cars rust and fall apart. Your body, it will decay, grow old, and die. And if you make these things your lot, you will lose everything. That's the first promise that Maastricht is giving us. But then he gives us a second promise, and this is such a good promise. If you make the simple God your lot, contenting yourself with him and him alone, you shall gain the simple God. And if you gain the simple God, you have that all that matters here and now and forever. For you have the God who is pure deity and nothing else. And as we think about it, connecting this back to how we started, this is exactly what Moses preached Israel on the edge of Canaan. He was giving them a theology lesson, but he was giving them something so much more. What is Moses doing on the edge of Canaan? He is calling Israel to their one treasure, to the one God who is one. And Moses is saying it is only this God, not the gods of the Canaanites, that will satisfy you because he indeed is one. And Moses preaches the same message to us this morning. He's giving us a theology lesson, but so much more. He is calling us to satisfy ourselves in this one God. So how do we respond to these promises? Well, the answer is so simple. We respond by hearing and obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you've heard these promises at the end of this sermon. What do, we, what do you need to do this morning? Well, the first thing you need to do this morning is you need to take your sin to the Lord Jesus. Take your discontentment with God, your, your cluttered heart, your love of idols, your theological errors, your low thinking. Take them all to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing. And here is the promise. If you take them to Jesus, he will forgive each and every one of your sins. I promise you that. It is true. It is gospel truth. And then do this. Grab hold of Jesus and do not let him go. Because what? Jesus is our most simple God. Make Jesus your lot and you will gain everything now and tomorrow and forevermore. And he is held out to you this morning. Take hold of him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for big and glorious and complicated doctrines. We confess that our minds are very small. We are so limited, we are just creatures. But we delight in striving after you with our minds and our hearts. And Father, we ask this morning, after listening to your word, would your word take root in us and change us? Would we endeavor today and tomorrow to make you our lot, turning away from these weak and worthless idols and setting our sights upon for you are the one God who is one. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.